What's up, kinfolk? It's RJ Young. I am not on a step mill. Welcome to another episode of the number one ranked show, where a little bit later on, we're going to talk with BYU head coach Kelani Sataki. He's going to talk a little bit about Zach Wilson, about Brady Christensen, and what makes Brigham Young just a little bit different than most other college football programs. And I want to talk about the NFL draft, but I want to talk about it from the standpoint of recruiting, right? Because I believe most of the kids make their decisions about where they're going to go play their college football based on who is going to put them into the NFL draft and how soon they can put them into the NFL draft. So I'm on the Twitters and I'm trying to contribute to the platform. Okay, I am trying to give you the sort of information that you have come to appreciate. And one of the things that the platform is good for. So I knew just from looking around and doing this research and this interview for Jalen Waddle that I did earlier this year that you could check out on CFB on Fox on the YouTube channel, that Waddle was different. And it's not just because he was actually wide receiver one at Alabama, got hurt, and then Demonte Smith wins a Heisman Trophy. It's because coming out of Bel Air Episcopal in the Houston area, he was the only player in the 2018 class among the top 15 recruits in the state of Texas to not sign with either Texas or Texas A&M, the only one, he went to Alabama. In the 2021 NFL Draft, he is the only one of those players who was drafted, let alone in the first round. Okay, so the immediate rebuttal to this, if you're an Ampersand U or UT fan, is, yo, most of those kids are still in school, which is the point, okay? As soon as you are eligible... For a job, you go apply for that job, okay? Let's, let's be very clear about this. None of us are going to college simply to better ourselves. We are going to college to qualify for the job we want. And as soon as we qualify for the job we want, we go get that job. Full stop. That is what Jalen Waddle was able to do after three years at Alabama and playing just four games games in 2020, taking 79 days off, showing up as a decoy in the national championship game, and oh yeah, picks up a national championship ring for his trouble, right? But then when you take that a little bit further out, we can talk about Texas and its development, we can talk about AM and its development, but I'm looking around at which states produce the most NFL draft picks of the 259 in this year's NFL draft, right? And at the top of the list is Florida at 37. Texas at 33 follows, right? Then you're getting into 21 in Georgia, 19 in California, 13 in Louisiana. Means about 47% of the NFL draft picks in 2021 come from five states. So in a football-loving country, those are the five best high school football states in America, and that checks out, right? Take a look at where some of these national championship rosters are built. But I also get that there are Texas fans in particular, and by Texas fans, I mean Texans, who take it personally that many of their kids end up at IMG Academy in Bradenton, Florida, and they go into the accounting as Florida natives. All right, so I'm from, the, from Tulsa, okay? I went to high school to start at Booker T. Washington High. I transferred in the middle of my junior year to Memorial High. My diploma says Memorial Senior High School, which means that in the history book, 
I am a charger before I am a hornet. It is not where you start, it is where you finish. And if you want to be able to claim your kids from your area, give them a reason to stay, period. And it's not as if Texas does not have national powers. South Lake Carroll is in Texas. North Shore is in Texas. Allen is in Texas. Geyer is in Texas. Ryan is in Texas. Duncanville is in Texas. Katie is in Texas. You have nothing to really be upset about here. And my better question is, why isn't there an IMG type in Texas? I know y'all would love to have it. Go try to build it. Oh, yeah. Prime prep. Didn't work because it's just built a little bit differently. So you have players, and you should have players, which gets back to why is Texas always talked about as a national title contender? Because they get who they want, and we expect them to develop who they are. Think about this. Joseph, yes, Joseph Asai was a first-team All-American at Texas last year. I had that man slotted as a first-rounder. Didn't get in there. Means Texas continues its streak. I'm not having a first round draft pick, which is ridiculous because we know the kind of player they get. But for whatever reason, since Mac Brown, they have not been able to routinely turn out first round draft picks. And then take into account which teams are putting in the most NFL draft picks. So we had four teams that had nine or more players drafted off of their 2020 roster. Three of those teams played in the college football playoff. One of them is a national champion. Alabama, Clemson, or excuse me, not Clemson, Alabama, Notre Dame, and Ohio State. Clemson we'll talk about here in just a second. The other one is Georgia. The same Georgia who had Justin Fields on the roster as a freshman and chose to ride with Jake Fromm, which is its own problem. But more to that, Georgia has not won a national championship in my lifetime. I'm 33. Means I would be damn near 40. I'd be turning 40 if Georgia won a national championship this year, and that would be how long it would have been since Georgia's won one, right? So all to say Georgia has those same sorts of problems that Texas has just a tier higher. You're getting the guys that you want, and you are putting out some of the best players routinely in football. I mentioned the third best state in pushing out NFL draft picks is the state of Georgia. And it's not like Georgia Tech is out there just, you know, ruining Georgia's day. No, that is everybody else. Clemson comes through there on the regular. Speaking of Clemson, there were a couple of teams that had more draft picks than Oklahoma and Clemson. That would shock you. Pitt had six. Kentucky had six. Penn State had six. Now, Penn State is a little bit different for me because Penn State is a traditional power, but they were bad last year, and they still had six dudes drafted, okay? Now, the counter to that is Clemson and Oklahoma didn't have that many dudes declared for the draft. It's an on-again, off-again year, but you get the point here, right? You ought to be putting out players. And then, if we take into account who has been putting out the most in the common draft era, right? 1967-1969 becomes the NFL draft in 1970, and we can get into the minutiae there, but the point here is there are only three teams that have had a player drafted in every single draft since the common draft era has begun, and those are SC, USC, Florida, and Michigan, which is another way of saying, what are we doing here? 
We expect SC to be good. We expect Florida to be good. We expect Michigan to be good. So when they're not, it feels like a letdown. It feels like a disappointment. But you have lots of data to show. If you pick one of those schools, you're probably going to get drafted. That's how the NFL thinks of this place. Also, measure this. The teams that have, or players that perform well against Ohio State, Alabama in particular, but Notre Dame as well, get drafted. Nobody had really heard about Rashawn Slater until Joel Klatt and I started talking about it at the watch party of college football, right? Or for the college football national championship. And the reason is, they didn't really watch who was rolling up Chase Young when Northwestern played against Ohio State. It was that dude at right tackle. We're seeing dudes that were having success against Chase Young, some of the best edge rushers in the sport, getting drafted highly. Off of that one game, off of that one piece of film, because guess what? They want the guy who played against the best guy and did his best work against the best guy. Not necessarily the guy that has been consistently great. It's also a wild draft for a lot of reasons in that you saw some dudes that I thought had first-round grades just two years ago either fall in the draft, Sean Wade, or not get drafted at all. Stuart Brand, Cam Newton, Jamie Newman? No, he didn't get drafted. Marvin Wilson didn't get drafted either. I would have lost money on that, right? This is also a historically bad draft for defensive tackles. First time since 1998 that we didn't see at least two go in the first round. What I'm saying here is, if we are going to measure college football success, we have to measure it, A, by who wins championships, and B, what does the NFL say about your development? Because nobody's going up to Nick Saban and saying, hey, I don't think that kid is ready. First, he's the first person to tell you that. And second, he had nine dudes drafted and none of them were Dylan Moses, who I thought would have won a Buckus Award a couple of years and has had these non-football injuries of late. All to say, there is a road here, but there's also a non-traditional one, okay? The number two pick in this draft by the Jets Quarterback out of BYU by the name of Zach Wilson. Now, the in interesting thing about BYU is it is traditionally a place where you are going to stay for all four years, and depending on how you count a mission trip, maybe longer. It's not uncommon for those dudes to be married with children playing college football. But Zach Wilson didn't even need to return for his senior year because he was that good. So if you demonstrate to NFL personnel that you are that good, at least in their eyes, no matter what I think, you will leave college to go play in the NFL because guess what? You're not going to do any better than the first round. And if you're a quarterback, you're probably not going to do any better than number two overall. What is left for Zach Wilson to do at BYU? What is left for him to develop? Plenty, actually, but not in the eyes of the NFL. So go get your money. And go get paid, kiddos. All right. Let's talk with Kilani Sataki about his program, about that magic year in 2020, and really what I think is going to be an outstanding program for years to come. BYU coach Kilani Sataki, thank you for joining us on the number one ranked show. How you doing, coach? Thanks for having me on, RJ. Looking forward to it. Well, I want to start with the positives and the superlatives. The best season that BYU has had since 2009, its first one-loss season since 1996. How do you follow that up in 2021? Well, I mean, there's always room for improvement. I don't think the, uh, the goal is always set on, um, on the record as much as just performing at your best, you know. So 
there are opportunities that we could have done better last year, even with that, that record. And uh, we went through spring ball with the approach to try to improve. And, uh, you know, we, we were missing some guys and obviously a lot of production, but I, I feel like we have a, a, a lot of players and talent returning and looking forward to, to some of these players making a mark like the, the, you know, the underclassmen that left early did, including Zach Wilson. Well, let's talk a little bit about Zach Wilson. And I want to start with just how he became your starting quarterback because at the time, talking about a senior in Tanner Mangum, and you have this kid that you know is good, but when did you decide it was the time to throw him into the fire and let him lead your football team? Well, yeah, you know, the only way I know how to do it as a coach is to just play the best. And um, whenever the timing is, it it doesn't matter if you're uh, a freshman or a senior returning starter. I I believe everyone's got to compete. And so it just happened that um, we knew we had something special in in Zach Wilson when he came as a true freshman. He he came to school mid-year, so he came early, played spring ball. We knew he was going to be a special player. It was just a matter of time before he – you know, he had to compete and earn the spot. And, and uh, when that time was right, it was, happened to be midseason. And, um, you know, we we're always going to hang on, on our hat on doing the right things. And then we felt like it was the right time for him to take over. And, um, you know, he had to battle through some injuries and things like that. But uh, you, last year you saw uh, a lot of um, what he can do when he's 100% healthy and with some experience under his belt. And so really looking forward to seeing what he does in the NFL. But um, it, it as a coach and in our program, as a culture, we, we play the best, and that's how we function. That's the only way I know how to do it as a head coach. It's one thing for you and your staff to know that he's the best guy for the job. It's another thing for your team to buy into him being the starter. And because BYU is a little bit different, and I want to say you guys have more married men on your roster than anybody else in college football, it takes a little bit more to win over that group. When did he win them over? Can you point to a specific moment? Oh, right away. When he got here as a true freshman, uh, he, he quickly, uh, you know, acclimated to our culture, to our players, uh, became a leader. Uh, but, he, you know, he learned young um, just how to, how to kind of gel as a leader, being a true freshman. That's hard for any true freshman to come in and then ask to be a leader right away. You know, but uh, the, the good thing about our program and, and the leadership that we have, even with our veterans, is that they, they care about truth more than they care about rank. It's not about the experience that you've had. It, it's if if someone says something that happens to be true, it doesn't matter if you're a walk on or a starter or non-starter. Our guys respect that. And so they, they, they were able to really cling to him because of the, his work ethic and his willingness to be a team player. And um, because of the leadership we saw from the upperclassmen, you saw uh, um, Zach Wilson really develop into a, a prime leader, and uh, we saw a lot of that this last year. I, the only negative is that I, I was really looking forward to his senior year, and uh, it just happened that he for, you know, had, had uh, just passed that up and went to the NFL, and I don't blame him, uh, but I, it would have been nice to have him back again for another year. Well, I can understand that because in our sport, Quarterbacks are program changers, and Wilson certainly fits that bill for you. But as I understand it, you're kind of late to the process in recruiting him. How did you win him over to get to BYU? Well, you know, we, we went through some uh, coaching changes and looking at, at recruiting. Um, we had some, uh, you know, some thoughts and ideas on, on what we wanted from our quarterback. Um, but it came time now to, to – he was committed to Boise for quite a while, and 
um, I don't know, it's, it's never too late to recruit. And so, you know, we just had this feeling that um, we had to go after a quarterback. And um, there's a, a good number of quarterbacks that are coming out of the state of Utah that year. And uh, even on the west side of the, uh, of, the, of the country that we were had connections to. And we had to, you know, think about where we're going to put all our energy into. And Zach was the guy that we felt like was the top of the of group. And we put everything we can, exhaust all our energies into it, even though it was a short amount of time on the family over and uh, had a great connection and, and the rest is history. Even so much that we signed his little brother um, that's a linebacker for us right now. So uh, we, we really um, lucky that we were able to, to connect with that family. And I'm, I'm really thankful that um, the Wilson family were, were humble enough to give me a chance to recruit him, even though we were late to the game. Was he the toughest player you ever had to recruit? No, no, I, I, I could tell that uh, he loved football from the very beginning. And I met this kid when he was in elementary school, when I was at Utah as a defensive coordinator. And uh, he was a, a kid coming in, in elementary school. I remember him, you know, him and Dax Milne and others that, that we have on our team. I remember them being really athletic when they're young and just followed them throughout their career in, in high school. And um, it, it wasn't, to me, it's not, I'm, I'm not a salesman in recruiting. I can only see if they're a good fit for us and if we're, we're a good fit for them. And the, the worst thing that could ever happen in recruiting is that a kid comes to BYU and wishes he was somewhere else or a kid goes somewhere else and wishes he was at BYU. You know, and so I, I think I take the approach and our coaches take the approach of recruiting as let's find the best fit for this young man and hope that he does well. And uh, if, he, if it's here at BYU, great. If not, let's cheer for his success, even though it may be somewhere else. And and uh, when we face them on uh, on opposing sides, let's make sure that we greet them and and do the Christ-like thing, which is, is make that connection. I, 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 it's hard for me to like somebody and then all of a sudden to turn around and not like them again. So uh, I like to make friends, and uh, you know maybe I don't get the this recruit this time, but maybe I get the little brother or the cousin or the friend. So Zach has his own sort of moxie, right? Starting with he took two BYU cheerleaders to his senior prom. He's also the kind of guy that wears a headband saying any team, anywhere, anytime, and he will go out there and wear his heart on his sleeve. How do you channel that sort of energy into doing great things on a football field and the kind of person he has shown himself to be off the field? Well, he's very confident, and um, that, because, that, that comes from his work ethic and his preparation. Um, when we go into a game, he is very calm. He takes the field with a lot of moxie. You said it yourself and, and confidence is because he's put a lot of time into it. He watches more film than, than anyone would ever know. While people are playing video games, this kid's watching football. And on his off time, he watches NFL quarterbacks. So um, the guy loves the game of football. It's, 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 a, it's a pleasure for me to coach him, an honor for me to coach him. And when he takes the field and, and, and he wants to make statements and he's, he's uh, confident, uh, sometimes I think sometimes people may misread that, uh, but not when you you're his coach and you're his uh, teammates and people see how hard he works. Um, you know, he he's we back him up because I I feel like he he doesn't just talk the talk; he walks the walk, and definitely he's a great example for us. And he's been a big part of the of a big catalyst to the culture in our program of guys working hard and putting in the extra time. And he's been the, the perfect example of that. I think, to put it mildly, 2020 was a challenging year for all of us. But what was it like for you to watch your athletic director tear up your schedule and rebuild it on the fly, looking for games? 
I was just really thankful um, that we got to play the game, you know, and, and, and we were fortunate to have 12 games. But I, I watched our players as they went through the whole pandemic, just like everybody else did, and um, just showed this high level of appreciation to our administration, to our fans, and to just the opportunity to play the game. And we know that there's a lot of people struggling with a lot of things in, in society during that time. And it, it, it allowed you to, to not take things for granted anymore, even like a, a eye-to-eye contact and conversation. And so um, I'm just thankful that I have a, a great group of young men that I get to coach that uh, really appreciate everything that comes to them in life. And, uh, you know, regardless of what the records would have been or the, the outcome of the game, I saw guys take the field with a, a unique perspective that, that's been different than any other year. And I see that continuing on, even the spring ball and the off-season conditioning. When did you know that 2020 team was going to be as special as it is? Well, we knew going into the season that we had a lot of young talent that, that we, we basically doubled down on when they started playing a lot of games as freshmen and sophomores and um, started playing a, a lot of reps, a quality game reps. And, um, you know, we saw the amount of leadership that we were a heavy upperclassman type of team, but uh, I, I knew that something was to be special about this team when you see how much they love each other and they, how they carry themselves uh, off the field. And then the service work that they did for others, uh, that stuff matters. And so um, you just know that over onto the field eventually and just really thankful that I was able to witness it uh, from the, you know, the best seat in the house and that's on the sideline and even in my perspective as a head coach. There were a number of games that I really loved watching last year, but none more in the regular season than yours against Coastal Carolina. What was your preparation like for that? And did that help you at all in making people understand you're willing to go play, you want the game, and we don't care who it is, put them on the field, we want to go at it? Yeah, and you know, that's a really talented team, and uh, we, we knew that it would be a tough task, but like I said, our guys were excited to play the game, and and we were kind of caught in uh, a two-week bye, and things were just getting kind of stale. We wanted to get back and play football again, and uh, when the opportunity came, we took it. You know, we we traveled uh, to the East Coast and played a very talented uh, Coastal Carolina team, and uh, came up one yard short. But it was a cool experience. You know what I mean? I, even though we didn't get the win, uh, we learned a lot from that game, and and I saw a lot of resilience in our team. From, by the way they reacted to that game and, and the way they were able to bounce back and finish the season strong and, um, and get a dominating win in the bowl game. One of the things I've been critical about in the college football playoff selection process is how it treats teams outside of the anonymous, autonomous five, and for which you are one. And I'm looking at you, and I'm looking at Cincinnati, and I'm looking at all these other teams that were undefeated at the time, not really getting an opportunity to build their case for that upper echelon to play for national championships. How important is it to you to be considered? Would you even consider expanding the playoff to give teams like yours an opportunity to go play for the ball? Well, I mean, we just got done watching March Madness and um, why that thing is so successful is because everybody has a chance and they prove it on the court. And um, you, you have an opportunity for these mad upsets, but then you have an opportunity for the best to prove it to themselves and uh, you saw the best that everyone kind of predicted that Baylor and Gonzaga would play, but it wasn't easy for them, right? And you saw the emergence of some other programs that didn't get the spotlight often, and it seemed like the, the fairest thing possible in, in competition. 
Uh, I don't know how you can do that in football. I, I know that we have great coaches in, in every level of, 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 of football that, that care about their young men, care about their teams, their fan base. And so uh, I don't know what the, the happy median is, but I know that when everybody has a shot, it makes things a lot more exciting. And so, um, you know, if we if that can be part of it, I, I'm not uh, smart enough to figure that out. I'm only uh, my only concern is helping our players uh, perform at their best here at BYU and uh, making our fans happy. But in the meantime, uh, I, I know there's some really smart people out there, including yourself, that can kind of figure this out and put a, put a system together that will make everyone happy and, and create the kind of um, excitement that you see uh, through basketball in March Madness. I'm with you, Coach. I, I really want to see that worked out. And I, I want to ask a follow-up to that. Did the number of games that would probably have to occur – anywhere between 12 and even 16, matter to you? Do you think that playing four more games or five more games is really going to hurt the sport? I don't think so. I mean, I, I think if you ask these young men, they'll play as many as they can. Hmm. And then, you know, most rosters are full of 120 guys. And, and if, if everyone's talking about how deep their teams are and the, these, these P5 teams celebrate their depth, then they shouldn't have a problem playing more games. So anytime our guys that can play uh, 12 games and um, more than that, it's just a bonus. And then if you ask the players at, at any level, they would love to play as many games as possible. And I think there's a way that you can make it work. I mean, there's, there's times that our players are asked to play two games in one week, you know? And so I think if you can kind of space it out and, and, and maybe extend the season longer, I don't know. I, 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 if there's a chance for us to play more games, I, I would love to do it because I, our players deserve that. You get to think about all the time that they put in into the offseason to play only 12 guaranteed opportunities. And if you're a starter, that's only minutes in a game still. That's you're playing maybe 25 minutes in, in that game if you're playing every rep on your side on offense or defense. So you're literally just playing for minutes. How about the guys that play only special teams or in on two, two things on a kickoff or, or punt? They're, they're literally playing maybe two minutes in a game and they play, they plan all year and train all year for those moments. So I, I think it just get anytime you can give them more minutes on the field and, and then make them feel like their time is worth it. Uh, that's something that's a positive. And, and I know people are going to want to talk about keeping the guys healthy and things like that. And, um, you know, maybe don't, don't, there's a lot of guys that get hurt in, in fall camp and a lot of guys get hurt in spring ball. Maybe just be more mindful of, of, uh, putting all their time into the season and keeping them, keeping them healthy there. But I, I think if you allow more games and then the, the coaches are really brilliant and in college football, they'll figure out how to keep their guys healthy and, and uh, get their best product on the field. No, I'm, I'm with you, right? Cause I've always thought that the scoreboard should tell us who plays in a playoff and telling a kid outside of the autonomous five, he's not good enough to play for a national championship with all the work he puts in. I can't abide that. So I appreciate you being as candid as you are with this. I want to switch back to the NFL draft a little bit here and talk a little bit about Brady Christensen. What is it about him that makes him so good on the offensive line? Because I always thought that if we were talking about this correctly throughout the season, it would have been less about Zach Wilson and more about that dude. Yeah, a special player. And we have a lot of those guys on, on our team. But um, Brady, the thing I could tell you about him is he's, He's a, a big guy, and I think I can quote him. He's, he's just not a regular fat guy, right? And he's a guy that does a multi-sport athlete. So he played baseball, basketball, football in high school, and, and um, I, I think he's exactly the reason why kids should just play so many different sports and not just be so specialized 
especially at a young age. Um, you know, he was an undersized kid that had some length and that was able to put on some good, some good weight uh, later on in life and, and, and became one of the best tackles in college football. So uh, he's going to have a great career in the NFL, but um, his athleticism uh, was because of all the different sports and the things that he was willing to do when he was younger. Knowing you have so many open spots that are up for competition in this spring ball, how are you challenging yourself with giving guys reps and opportunities to go and win those jobs as opposed to maybe penciling in guys that you thought from last year deserved the opportunity to start this year? I'm going to go back to the the best play. And, and, um, you know, my job is to, and our coaches' jobs, we're, 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 Challenge, our challenge is to try to get them an opportunity to prove themselves and give them an opportunity to compete. And um, that's, that's hard to do, but uh, it's, it's been done before. And, and, and then to make sure that our players keep competing. I, I don't believe once you're a starter, you're always a starter. I think you have to keep fighting for your spot. Um, guys, guys mature at different levels and, and they, you know, one year they're still developing and then all of a sudden the, the, the light goes off in their head and they're fully developed and they get it and they understand the game. And uh, sometimes that happens in their freshman year, sometimes it happens in their junior year or even their senior year. And um, in the meantime, we need to keep finding ways to keep developing them and get, get them to that point. And whenever um, they earn the spot, you, you have to give it up to them and you have to let them let them take it over. That's, that's the best way to deal with it, handle it on the field. Are there things from the pandemic that you had to implement that you're keeping going into 2021? Yeah, we, you know, we, there's a time where our players needed to um, do things on their own. And, um, you know, it was, it was unique because when we had an opportunity to come back together and train in, in after uh, the quarantine, our players came back in pretty good shape. And, and um, it showed me that they were able to take a lot of the, the time that they had on their own and utilize it to help themselves become better. And uh, that was a, a good lesson for me as a head coach, and that's something that we're going to continue to do is allow our players uh, some opportunities to motivate themselves intrinsically. And, and they, they know what things that they want to work on and, and focus on that and, and uh, give them some time to get better on their own and, and master their own craft and then uh, use that to help catapult them into fall, the fall season. And that worked for us this, this last uh, 2020 season. And uh, we're looking to, to really um, maneuver around that and help it uh, complement what we're going to do in the off season when they come back to train. I want to talk about you just a little bit here because it, it occurred to me that you played for Lavelle Edwards. And for me, that name rings out for a number of reasons. So I'm going to ask you, do you have a favorite Lavelle Edwards story you can tell us? And Lavelle Edwards was the best. And, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm lucky that I was uh, named the head coach my first year. And that, and that he was still alive. I was able to talk to him and get a lot of advice from him. And, and I, I met with him every week. And, uh, you know, during the, during those meetings, we talked very little about football. And the one thing that I can tell you about him is he cared about people. And it wasn't just limited to football players. In those meetings, he talked about helping others. And, and um, that's something that he was really passionate about. And um, that's something that he shared with all of us that played under him. We knew that that was a, a big part of, of what his um, motivation was in life. And so uh, it left a huge imprint on me and, and, and my teammates and those that played under him for those three decades, you know. And so uh, anything I could do to, to 
to keep his name alive and keep his his philosophy and his ways of, that that were very unique and different than and than college football even at his time and it's even unique now. But you see guys like Andy Reid and other coaches that have been under him and have played for him like Kyle Whittingham and others that are carrying on that same uh, mantra and that same torch that he carried when he was here as a head coach and. It's just an honor for me to, to call him a mentor. How does a fullback end up coaching defense? <laughs> uh, you know, I was lucky that, to be able to be a defensive graduate assistant, and my first jobs were coach DBs. Uh, it allowed me to spend a lot of time with uh, great coaches that, that taught me so many things. But when I was at BYU, it wasn't under Lavelle Edwards. It wasn't just my relationship with my position coach. Uh, Lance Reynolds and our offensive coordinator, Norm Chow, it was my my relationship with all the coaches. They were all mentors to me. Um, that was unique. Then, and I, I got to become really close friends with all these coaches. And so I, I was interested in the game of football. And at BYU back in the day, we learned defenses. We learned uh, what coverages we're going to face. Against. And, you know, we ran that offense that everyone's talking about is the air raid now. And so we had to learn the defense to know where the open holes were. And we weren't the, we weren't the most dominating talent on the field, but we had to find ways to, to get open. And, um, you know, for me as a fullback, I, I caught a lot of footballs and had a lot of fun playing that position. But I knew that I wanted to be involved in the game of football, well, however it could come. And it just happens that, that I was able to, to make my mark and, and on the, the defensive side. And I had great mentors like Kyle Whittingham and Gary Anderson and um, Ken Schmidt and Barry Lamb and other great coaches that helped take, take me under their wing and teach me. Coach, I'm going to ask you on the spot, pitch me. Why should I come to BYU? Because it's going to be hard here, right? It's, it's hard. It's a hard school. Academics is difficult. We live a lifestyle that's unique with an honor code that we love, and, and, and we feel like that's going to help catapult you. You're going to have to sacrifice some things to, to succeed here at BYU, um, part of your social life, but you're going to find some great rewards in it. Um, and, and you always remember things that are difficult. The, the teammates that I played with and people that played at BYU know that it's a structured system that you have to live a disciplined life. Football is really difficult and school is hard. And when you leave this place, you'll be a different person. So the fact that uh, you, if you, growth happens when, when things are difficult, come to BYU, you'll grow and you'll find yourself being your best self and it'll carry on through the rest of your life. BYU coach Kilani Sataki, thank you so much, sir, for joining us here on the number one ranked show. Good luck in finishing spring ball in this upcoming 21 season. Thanks. Go Cougs. So that was fun. Kilani Sataki out there just selling his program to me. And, you know, I, I like that. I might actually keep that because I just asked him, yo, recruit me to BYU on the spot. And he did it. And this is a man who doesn't usually go out of his way to do such a thing, but also was the guy that went back into the Wilson household and said, hey, look, I missed the first time. Please let me recruit this kiddo to come play for us. We're going to give him a shot to win the job, and now he's got the number two overall pick in the NFL draft. Not too shabby for Kalani Sataki. All right, so we have some very cool things happening right here on the show. But to that end, we're going to change up the release schedule, the cadence of the show. We're going to go to once a week. Each Monday, you'll be able to find the show in your podcast feed, on the YouTubes, wherever it is that you choose to enjoy the number one ranked show. And if you are on a podcast app, please leave us a five-star review. It helps people discover the show. 
And I think you're going to want to tell people about next week because Bob Stones is going to be on the show. Dude, I, all right, Bob is my guy, okay? I became a true blue college football fan and really Oklahoma fan with Bob's teams. And I am fortunate in that I got to see Bob coach my team for 18 years. And I lived through each one of those kids and adults, really, from Jason White on up, Tommy Harris, G.K. McCoy, some of the dudes that I actually went to high school with end up playing over there. It's it, I am over the moon about it, and I can't wait to talk with him about it. been taking notes on his book again, and I can't tell you how cool I think this conversation is going to be. So please, look forward to that. I'm excited about it. We're also going to get to talk with Arizona State head coach, Herm Edwards. And if you have ever heard anything that Herm has had to say about even a grocery list, you want to hear what Herm has to say about his football team because he's wildly entertaining and wildly wise. I'm so excited about that. Lots of big guests coming on the show. And isn't that what this is about, right? This is awesome. Like, I get, yeah, I love talking about college football. I love getting my opinions and stuff, but I love hearing what these coaches are thinking about their programs what they think about recruiting, what they think about the college football landscape, and what they think about the future of the sport. Man, I'm excited. All right, that is it for me. Doses.